Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with us today for our weekly roundup in the news in Just Ask the Press is Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John Bennett. This week, we're going to unpack uh, uh, Trump getting booed and getting and DeSantis getting the fake. No, wait a minute. That was what we were talking about in the green room. We're going to talk about Mark Meadows and uh, his denial of having his case moved from federal to federal court. Trump is contemplating asking for the very same thing. A Georgia prosecutor rebukes uh, Jim Jordan. The House returns. Pelosi wants to return. The latest in the polls. Do we care and why are we reporting on it? Wet bulb days coming soon to a city near you, and so much more, including, uh, well, no, the worst tea, no, <laughs> well, a lot more. So stick around and we'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me once again, editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John Bennett, Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor. And we're going to start with, uh, uh, Michael, I guess with you, Mark Meadows was denied a move to federal court in the Georgia case. What does this mean, and who cares? <laughs> well, certainly he cares, because he <laughs> appealed immediately <laughs> the, the decision. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> What's at play is that people who are federal employees who are acting within the scope of their job cannot be sued in state court. It was passed so that state courts don't harass federal officials. And so if you're a federal official and you're acting in the scope of your normal day-to-day business responsibilities and a state sues you for those activities, you can have that case removed from that state court to the federal court. That's what Meadows sought to do. So the big question was whether he was acting in his official capacity, sort of scope of his employment, when he made phone calls to uh, Secretary of State uh, Rassenberger in Georgia, whether when he set up meetings Uh, for Trump with other legislators in states that Trump was contesting. And he said, broadly speaking, these setting up meetings, making phone calls sort of things is what the chief of staff does. 
and therefore I was acting within the scope of my employment. The federal court analyzing the RICO statute and the acts that Meadows undertook uh, as outlined in that RICO statute determined that that which Meadows did fell outside of the scope of his employment. That is that he was working for candidate Donald Trump, not President Donald Trump. And because it was outside the scope of his official duties, removal to federal court was not worthy of that removal. And so they keep it in state court. Why it matters to um, Meadows in particular is that if he's in federal court, he gets then to raise the question of, is he immune from the prosecution? Because under the laws of the United States, if you're a federal official acting within the scope of your official duties, you have immunity from prosecution. You can't be sued for doing your job. Right. Um, and so he, if if he gets a court to take step one, saying he was doing his job, and therefore it goes to the federal court, then the federal court on a second motion to dismiss, which would be fo- followed by Meadows after the removal motion, the court would then analyze whether or not he's immune from prosecution. So all this is about trying to get to that immunity question and whether or not he uh, has has federal immunity. But is there any- and I'm he sorry. has to now appeal uh, the matter and everybody else who is making a similar motion, I think is going to find themselves in worse shape than Meadows. Meadows, in theory, had the strongest case as chief of staff. He has the broadest mandate as a federal employee, as opposed to some electors who are claiming it and, you know, sort of really down the food chain from being federal officials. And and then there's Trump, who uh, right. has made noise about wanting to remove to federal court. Uh, but if you take the judge's analysis in the Meadows case and you port it over to Trump, then what the judge seems to have found in Meadows that would be relevant to his determinations in Trump is if Meadows was acting for candidate Trump, not President Trump, then it would seem that President Trump, as he seeks to remove it, will be considered by the court as being candidate Trump, not President Trump. And so, you know, it's hard to always say this is a sure uh, outcome, but it would seem that based on the analysis in the Meadows case, if Trump moves to remove, he should lose on the same political candidate versus official position um, decision-making. In your estimation, does this uh, appeal that uh, Meadows has filed have a hope in hell of being a success? Yeah, it's a it's a close question whether or not he was acting within the scope of his authority. I think the judge, though, did a very careful job in analyzing sort of act by act and then looking at the totality of the circumstances uh, as alleged in the indictment and has concluded that in whole, Meadows was not acting as chief of staff Meadows. Meadows was acting as, uh, I don't know what he was for, you know, gopher for the um because he didn't have an official position on the trump campaign but he was but he was doing a lot of things on its behalf so yeah 
it's a it's there's a close question of fact and you know the law sort of favors um removal but i think the judge you know laid out the basis for his argument and we'll see you know there's an open question of whether or not this is immediately appealable they they appealed it but the 11th circuit has the authority i think to say you know what you have to wait till the end of the trial this is not something that can be taken up immediately it's not a final judgment and therefore it's not appealable or they could take it up and say yeah it is it is an appeal immediately what, what's appealable. your thought on that again it's a the law is not clear there is nothing uh in these cases that is clear uh, we'll talk in a little bit about the 14th amendment section three yeah. and um disqualification nothing is clear because it's not really been litigated and so the question of whether it's uh, immediately appealable you've got some people who say yeah others who say no and we'll see what the 11th circuit says john your thoughts well that's certainly not the job of a white house chief of staff the things that that mr meadows was doing you, brian you and i both yeah covered the white house so we understand that the job of the chief of staff is really running the west wing and the staff day to day and and really is kind of air traffic control for who gets in front of the president and what paper gets in front of the president and you know leading that that really in in any other white house uh that very um, <laughs> that very detailed and laborious process of bringing you know two three four options to the president who ultimately of course makes a decision and and he runs the he or she runs the well i guess we've never had a just a wedding on the first uh female chief of staff right um yep. so the chief of staff typically manages the president's schedule you know, you're helping coordinate events, you're working with the advanced team, then next thing you know, you're you're in a meeting with the economic council, then you're back on a scheduling thing, and then you're in the room briefing the president with the CIA director about some hot spot that just blew up halfway around the world, and then you're you're prepping him for a speech that he's given the next day. So that's the job of the chief of staff. And it has nothing to do with I hate to, but but to your point. That has not in all the other <laughs> White Houses that we've covered. That has nothing to do with re-election efforts. And in fact, no. there was always a staff that took care of that outside of 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 the chief of staff. Yes, correct. You know there is there is a political staff. Uh, they usually work out of the the executive the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, but. Uh, but that's not a campaign staff. You know, they're not getting paid taxpayer dollars to help run a president's campaign. And it's it's pretty clear as the judge ruled that, excuse me, Mr. Meadows uh, was was basically an arm of the Trump campaign. And then he was part of this group of of outside advisors. He was part of the Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell group. And, you know, that had nothing to do with should we take this Labor Department report to the president? Should we summarize it for him? You know, that's what a chief of staff does. Where right. should he go? Um, where should he go on his farewell tour? You know, that that would be something that a chief of staff at that point would have been thinking about. Uh, you know, the president wants to go. He wants to hit four or five states and thank him, you know, helping pick. Let's go to Tennessee and 
you know, Wyoming and, you know, North Carolina, Florida, you know, that kind of thing. That's what a chief of staff at that point would have been doing. A chief of staff at that point would have been uh, setting up the transition and working with uh, President-elect Biden's transition team on on various issues, China, terrorism, uh, et cetera, on down the list. That's what a chief of staff would have been doing. I mean, you don't see um, you don't see Mr. Zines, electors. Who, yeah, <laughs> you don't see Mr. Zients, who's uh, President Biden's chief of staff right now. You know, he's not he he's not um, he's he's not doing campaign things. He's he's managing the paper and the people and the schedule, which is what a chief of staff does. So, Michael, when uh, Trump says, and 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 John, I guess we'll, we'll get both of you on this, when Trump says that he's considering mulling the idea of filing a similar request for his case, um, Michael, you already said that you think that uh, that Meadows had the strongest case against, you know, a, a, a for moving it to federal court. You think that Donald Trump's uh, plea, I mean, first of all, he hasn't said he's actually going to do it. He's just saying that he's mulling it. Which and you know, John, you're shaking your head. You know damn well what what the hell does that mean? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to jump in, but you know, it just reminds me of all those days on the South Lawn, the choppers in the background, and you know, somebody asked Trump a good question, and it's clearly the first time he's heard about it. Well, I might look at it, I might do it, I could do it, I maybe I'm going to look at it, but I might not. Yeah, that's so, Michael. What do you think? He's mulling it, and you think he has a hope in hell of it? him getting it moved to federal court? Well, by the analysis used in the Meadows decision, it seems that the judge believed that Meadows was acting on behalf of candidate Trump, not President Trump. And so if Meadows was acting under uh, the authority of candidate Trump, then it would seem to me that candidate Trump is the one who's moving for removal and the same analysis should apply that he was acting as a candidate um in in all of these ways <laughs> i i thought he was always candidate trump even when he was president trump he always seemed to be running for the office um and never you know, actually doing in the work <laughs> you know but he's also using the mulling word <clears throat> he's also mulling over testifying he yeah. said on uh, some show that he would absolutely testify and that must have made his defense counsel you know, <laughs> sit, up, sit up straight because most likely that wasn't in the defense counsel's playbook yeah, that Donald Trump would take the witness stand and swear to tell the truth but you know he's mulling it he's mulling he's mulling it <laughs> I can't stop laughing. I'm sorry. The, the the image of Donald Trump on the witness stand, John, is just enough to make me giggle. <laughs> I mean, it's the ultimate pool spray, right? It's, yes. <laughs> I mean, there are no reporters, of course, but that's, you know, I, I, I still see him in my mind's eye sometimes uh, sitting in one of those yellow chairs in front of the fireplace in the Oval and, and we're firing questions at him and, you know, 25 minutes later, um, you've got 15 headlines from the guy. Yeah. That's... <laughs> uh, but no, you can't let him write. I mean, you can't let him test. I mean, ultimately, it's his decision. I, yeah. I guess. I mean, I guess if you're counsel and you're dead set against it, I guess you could walk away. Um, 
that maybe that's a that could be a delaying tactic. Trump forces another delaying tactic. He could force his counsel to just repeatedly quit, and <laughs> the judge would. I mean, he has to have a lawyer, I guess, so that would delay things. Um, now, I, I I see all this as you know he's going to take this up to the deadline. I believe he had thirty days, um, and we're 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 kind of in the middle of that. I think. Yeah, I would expect on the 29th day um, that Trump would seek to to move this to federal court. And, you know, the tactic there might not be to win the motion and get it moved. It could just be to take, you know, another week or two and and push the try and hope to push the trial back um, as a result of that as far as you can. And and that that's clearly what he wants to do and, and his counsel wants to do. Um so, you know, I, I, you make a good point, Brian, about where, where did candidate Trump and president Trump, where did one start stop and the other start? It was always hard to tell. I mean, I, how many stories did I write um, for roll call about Trump turned an official event into a campaign rally? Oh, most of them. Yeah. Most of them he did. Yeah, um, and they were all camp. They were all rallies. I mean, he would stick to the speech and go off and on the prompter. Um, but you, it, uh, other than the crowd in the background, and sometimes those official event crowds got pretty rowdy. It sounded like he was at, you know, uh, he was he was at an airport in Iowa, um, you know, giving an evening rally, and it's two in the afternoon, and he's talking to you know some business group and in Wisconsin or something. So, you know, I think the judges are teaching us here and grand juries and prosecutors that, that they're, they're showing us where it starts and stops candidate Trump and president Trump. And it's in the actions. Yeah. And it's what, it's what they didn't want us to see a lot of the time. And, and we've seen a lot. And I, I assume at trial, we'll see even more examples of how, candidate trump it appears really got the best of president trump and let's or the uh, worst depending on your perspective or the worst i'm gonna take a before we head to the break one of the last things i want to consider is something you brought up earlier michael and that was um the 14th amendment uh the wall street journal recently published an opinion that said that uh donald trump it's a question is whether or not he was an officer of the united states government and the reason why that is important is because of uh, Article 3 and uh, Amendment 14 saying that an officer of the United States can be removed for uh, uh, seditious acts. Um, and it, I, I can look at a couple of things as we get into it. Article 2, Section 1, the executive power shall be vested in the president of the United States. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president, chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. And there have been very few cases, as you also said, Michael, earlier, this is something, and maybe we said it in the green room, this is something that really hasn't been adjudicated before or litigated before. And um, But I will go back to the 1976 case before the Supreme Court, Buckley versus Vallejo. The court established that, quote, officers of the United States, quote, are those persons, quote, exercising significant authority pursuant to the laws of the United States. So in that regards, is Donald Trump an off? I mean, uh, the argument is made that, you know, the president is an office, but the president is not an officer. Can you walk that one? Walk me through that one. 
Not simply. <laughs> I don't think anybody can. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it's it's complicated because it hasn't been litigated, and there are um, people on both sides of the political aisle who are lining up saying yay or nay, and it's not liberals for and conservatives against. You have the heritage um, uh, people, you have uh, Judge Ludic, the well-known constitutional uh, conservative, um, saying that, yes, the 14th Amendment does apply um, to, to Trump. And just so people know what we're talking about, Section 3 of Article 14, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Amendment, says that, and it was passed in the aftermath of the Civil War, it was passed to say anyone who joined the Confederacy uh, as an officer in, in the Confederacy cannot come back to the United States House or Senate um, unless they swear an oath of allegiance to to the constitution so it was it was specifically designed to keep former confederate officers from returning to the united states um government the north if you will and um but the language is not so narrow as to say only confederate officers it says that uh, anyone who um having taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution and thereafter rebels against it, either through an overt insurrection or giving aid to the enemies of the Constitution, shall be excluded from holding office in the future. That's sort of basically what it says. So it doesn't say anything about if you join the Confederacy and were at this rank, you can't come back. It says anyone who engaged in either uh, an overt act of insurrection or giving aid and comfort to the Constitution's enemies, um, and having already sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, is prohibited from running for, uh, from holding future office. Um, I suppose you can run for it, but not be seated. Um, yeah. And as I said, there, you know, there's an article in The Atlantic by Ludic, a con very conservative, and Lawrence Tribe, a very liberal, concluding that, yes, in fact, this as applied to Trump, um, should it be excluding of him? You know, one of the questions is, what constitutes engaging in an insurrection? In the yeah. Civil War, it was clear that it was an insurrection. They 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 swore allegiance to another uh, sovereign, the Confederate States of the United States, right? Right. Here, Trump hasn't been convicted. He hasn't even been charged with insurrection. And exactly. so people are saying, well, wait a second, what's the standard by which we meet the test of engaged in an insurrection? Does it have to be a does it have to be a criminal conviction beyond a reasonable doubt? Can it be just an indictment? Can it be a group of people sort of kibitzing and saying, yeah, yeah, that looks like insurrection to me. He's out. You know, those things have to be answered. I, I tend to think um, conservatively on this and that absent um, at least a, uh, an indictment for it, but most likely some sort of conviction of it, it's hard to, and dangerous perhaps, um, to say he's engaged in an insurrection 
and therefore should be disqualified. You know, um, Alan Dershowitz always says, when you make your analysis, before you reach your, you know, hit the send button, ask, would your analysis be the same if the shoe were on the other foot? That is, if a person who you align with politically did the same thing, would you be so fast to say, yes, they should be excluded from engaging in insurrection? So, for example, would the um, politicians who uh, protested the war in Vietnam, uh, would that be by Nixon's definition and even perhaps LBJ's, they were engaging in an insurrectionist act. They were taking, um, giving aid to our constitutional constitution's enemies. You know, in World War I, people spoke out about against the draft and they were jailed for yeah. it. Um, and charged with uh, uh, the Espionage Act. Yeah, Espionage Act. And so are those people disqualified? I mean, Eugene Debs ran from his jail cell. Um, yeah. So you have to be very careful, it seems to me. I think Dershowitz is correct. You have to be careful in your analysis to not have what they you know, call uh, Trump derangement syndrome, which is if it's against Donald Trump, I'm for it. Right. That's a way to do legal analysis because you know what goes around comes around and so i can't you know whether he was an officer of the united states i don't know nobody knows um whether he's an officer as the as the president of the united states or an officer means someone under the president of the united states hasn't <laughs> that hasn't been decided um you know and there are other cases where people are secondary officers and primary officers there are all these uh, lines that uh, demarc one from the other, but I can't get past at the moment uh, determination that he engaged in insurrection simply because I wish it were so. You know, it has to be to me more along the lines of a of a conviction or some you know finding by some you know quasi judicial body that this occurred. It just can't be ad hoc, dangerous right. stuff. And, and 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 John, you you had a pretty <laughs> succinct comment on it. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Shall I? Yeah. This please. is you know, it's just I I saw the the piece that Michael referenced, and and of course the the chatter that followed it. This is just more wishful thinking. Uh, the 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 I don't want to call them mental gymnastics because that's a pejorative, and that's not exactly what I mean, but the the contorting from that from the never trump and 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 liberal progressive democrats to try to find some way to make him go away has become it's boring okay yeah. the only the only way he goes away is if joe biden beats him next november and or but not and or because he could get convicted, I think, and, and be president. Um, you know, you'll have to you'll have to you'll have to convict him and or beat him next November. And, you know, articles are interesting and they get you attention. Um, but until somebody takes that into the court system and tests it, you know, I'm not that interested. Yeah, there you go. And with that thought, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have a lot more, including Jimbo Jordan. Yay! So stick around.
We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's just asked the question. I am your host, Brian Caramel. We've been talking uh, about uh, Donald Trump and his wonderful problems with the federal government, but let's talk a, a little bit about uh, Jim Jordan. Uh, Jordan wants a probe into the Trump charges and specifically wants a probe into Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, who reached out and sent him a very fiery letter. Um, I guess it's been called blistering. She calls his uh, attempts at looking at her office offensive, misinformed, and, quote, clear that you lack a basic understanding of the law, its practice, and the ethical obligations of attorneys generally, and prosecutors specifically. I would argue that Jim Jordan has a problem with any ethical obligations about anything, but nonetheless, Michael, is, 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 can, the, uh, can the Congress go after Fannie Willis and the prosecution in Georgia the way Jordan says, or is this just more politics from Jimbo? Well, I think it's political. I think that uh, the federal... Uh, judiciary committee, whatever committee he's doing this under the auspices of, uh, really has no role to play in how prosecutors in a state exercise their uh, discretion to charge or not charge people. It doesn't make sense to me uh, that this would be part of their domain, just like it didn't make sense to me, though he didn't get indicted. Lindsey Graham saying it would be a very um, bad thing if I could have gotten indicted for just doing my job. And the answer is, well, I'm sorry, what about being a South Carolina senator, making phone calls to the North Carolina, the rather the Georgia Secretary <laughs> of State about uh, fraud in Fulton County? What, I'm sorry, does that have to do with your duties as a United States senator from, from South Carolina? Uh, you know, <laughs> same thing here, Jim Jordan, you're sitting congressman from Ohio, and this is a state prosecution uh, in Georgia that has no federal component to it at the moment. What is it that uh, is within the scope of your uh, employment that leaves you to believe that this is appropriate for you to look at? And I think the answer is it's political. It's just flat out political. I mean, States' rights, I guess, only applies if it suits you personally, right? But not, but not broadly. So I think the answer is it's political. I think Willis gave a, uh, a stern rebuke to the notion that this is something that she thinks Jordan has the 
authority to to look into. But you know, it won't stop Jim Jordan from uh, making noise of, about how it is within his jurisdiction. But I think in the end, Willis is going to go about her 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 business. You know, if the case were removed, and it was in federal court, then you know maybe he has a colorable argument that because it's in federal court and it came from a state removal that he wants to look into matters of removal and and uh, immunity and uh, in the judiciary committee he should you know have a look at this as a possible example for him to decide whether new legislation is necessary around the question of of removal i mean he has a you know sort of a, a thin bear uh, threadbare um, uh, line to it were it in federal court, but it's not. And so for now, he should, um, you know, shut up and dribble. <laughs> John, you get to, you get to respond to that. We, got, we already got sports on there. I, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all politics. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Jordan, uh, likes attention as much as any politician and he's good at generating it for himself and this gets him on fox and newsmax and you know gets shared on social media so um that that's important uh for for a guy like jordan uh he likes a high profile um and you know uh the da miss willis uh with the letter uh there was excuse me there was some chatter that that this shows that you know she's more than up for this very difficult complicated case with 19 defendants that she's brought i think that that's premature i'm not going to call that wishful thinking because she's a very skilled obviously prosecutor and um but i think it's premature to say that we know for sure because she wrote a letter to a lawmaker that she's up for this high, highly complicated case with 19 defendants, including a former president of the United States. Um, I just think sometimes we should take a breath. <laughs> and, and shut up and dribble. <laughs> yes, we should all take Michael's advice. We should shut up and dribble. So as we shut up and dribble, let's dribble on to, uh, you know, you were talking about Jimbo Jordan in the house. Uh, the House returned this week. You want to unpack that for us, John? What are we looking at? Uh, are we going to see a government shutdown? Tell me, brother, you've been there. Well, I was up. I was there last week, and um, I can uh, direct everyone to rollcall.com. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, <laughs> tomorrow morning, um, for I wrote a, a a preview of the the fall and winter legislative session here. With the Senate was back last week. Well, they worked all of two full days kind of, and then uh, bolted, of course, and the house is back, but they can't be bothered to work tomorrow. So they'll be back <laughs> Tuesday evening. Um, and when they do finally make their way back after a seven week recess, it's all about uh, going to be a huge fight over spending. And as I wrote in the piece uh, that everyone can read tomorrow morning, uh, Monday morning, that is, um, you know, this is going to pit the Freedom Caucus in the House and their allies, and there are some conservatives who, who don't join those groups, but they certainly uh, work with the Freedom Caucus really closely, pit that, that conservative group against, well, just about everybody else. Because even Senate Republicans 
want higher funding levels overall. And, and that was the deal that that Speaker McCarthy, more on him in a second, um, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden reached a, a, a deal on fiscal 2024 spending, but the conservatives don't want to abide by the deal. They won't they won't spending cuts. They want to go back uh, to 2022 levels. And again, not even Senate Republicans want to do that. There's a handful of Senate Republicans, uh, conservatives like Ted Cruz and and others who are aligned with the Freedom Caucus on this. But, you know, they don't have 60 votes. They might have six. So the Freedom Caucus, though, does have the ability to threaten Speaker McCarthy's gavel. We've talked about this before here. So is that their pending? tactic, their tactic will be essentially to hold the federal government hostage uh, because if, you know, there's not a new some kind of funding bill by September 30th, uh, when the clock strikes October 1st, the government would cease operations for the most part. Um, there's always some some coins that uh, the Office of Management and Budget and Treasury find in the couch cushions that can float it over a weekend or even into a, another week. But we would have a government shutdown. And right now, that is certainly the tra trajectory that we're on, because even though there are the votes in the House to pass you know, some kind of bipartisan spending big bill at the end of the year or probably a temporary bill. That's what McCarthy wants to push and and kick the matter just sometime around Thanksgiving or, or maybe right after they get back from the thanks from a Thanksgiving break uh, to deal with full year funding for fiscal 2024. But to do that would mean McCarthy would use House Democrats to push it across the finish line. Uh, of 218 votes is, is usually the threshold. But if he did that, uh, House conservatives could try to boot him out of the speakership. Will they? And that's the threat. And Kevin McCarthy has only ever wanted to be Speaker of the House. He is the <laughs> rare politician in Washington who all reporting, uh, all reporting, and this is they've never corrected it, he's never wanted to be president. Yeah, he just wanted to be speaker. And so he's got it. And, you know, if, if he every you know, most people in Washington would say the right thing is to to avert a government shutdown, which, as Mitt Romney reminded me on Wednesday, the last government shutdown actually cost more money than to keep the government open. Uh, and conservatives don't they don't even acknowledge that point, because for them, government spending is an evil thing and they want to cut it so when you're up against people who think they're fighting evil boy that's hard to cut a deal yeah that's <laughs> and so i'm you know i'm usually the cynic in the room because i've seen you know just like you brian we're pretty cynical guys and you know I, i'm the one who'll grumble becoming the old man in the room that's fun and saying, oh, they'll hey, Michael, figure did you hear that? <laughs> yeah, they'll figure it out. It always gets done. <laughs> this time, I'm not playing that role because, because of the dynamics I just described. McCarthy's only ever wanted to be the speaker. He's got it. The right thing would be to go to Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, and say, okay, um, you know, give me give me 55 of your people. Let's pass this thing. And, and kick it down the road and keep talking about a bigger spending deal um, around the holidays. That's usually what would happen. The dynamics are much different now. And 
and I I have a hard time seeing, maybe not this time, but but at the end of the year, I have a hard time seeing how we don't have a government shutdown over the holidays. It's it the dynamics aren't there anymore, you know, to to throw one of these omnibus bills with, you know, 10, 11 appropriations bills for federal agencies and everybody hates it and leadership writes it in, in coordination with the White House. And, you know, everybody, everybody likes a little bit of it, but hates most of it. But man, we want to go home and open presents at Christmas and celebrate, you know, whatever holidays we celebrate. And we're sick of each other. And we just want to get the hell out of Washington. <laughs> well, that you still not, sound pretty cynical to me. The, <laughs> the last part, the last part will certainly be true. They'll be sick of each other and sick of the reporters and the reporters will be exhausted and staff will be exhausted. But the environment's not there to pass one of those big bills at the end of the year. I mean, even Lindsey Graham, who typically goes along with those things, he doesn't like them, but you know, he doesn't want a government shut down. And as he told a group of us um, this week on the Hill, he supported them in the past, but he says he won't support one. And, you know, he's a McConnell ally for the a Mitch McConnell ally for the most part. But if Mitch McConnell can't convince Lindsey Graham to vote for a big bill at the end of the year, I, I just don't, I don't, I just, I don't see how this is going to come together. They're not going to conference 12 different appropriations bills. And a lot of the House bills were written to, to assuage the conservatives, knowing that, you know, the Senate is in the process. They're going to start next week of passing much different versions of those bills. So in my mind, it has to be an omnibus, but even Senate Republicans say they won't vote for one. So I'm I'm having a hard time, maybe not at the end of the month, but around the holidays, you know, if I'm pushing my chips towards something, it's a shutdown. You and, and I don't see a way out of it. I don't see a way out of it. You know, there, there'll be political pressure, you know, sometime in January. We saw this under Trump and they did an omnibus and Trump hated it. Um everybody hated it, but I just don't, you know, you could have another temporary bill that would reopen the government sometime in January, but then in March, you're right back in the same, in the same situation. So this one, I'm having a hard time seeing the way out this time. Michael, is he a the only thing that interests? The only thing that interests me is if um, McCarthy tries to make some compromise with the Democrats does somebody from the Freedom Caucus or elsewhere in his party vote um, to have him removed? That for me is interesting because what we've seen is that, as you said, this is this is his lifelong dream come true. He doesn't want to give it up, and he'll make every you know devil deal, every Faustian bargain that he can to keep it. And uh, I'm interested to see what the terms of what he's willing to to do to keep himself in power, even if it's not in the best interest of the United States, uh, and so that's that's sort of what I'm looking at. Sort of what what deals what deals is he going to make to keep himself empowered, irrespective of the out uh, the impact uh, for the rest of us. Well, my the people, my... The people who is paying who are paying his salary, and uh, he serves at the behest of. Well, my question is kind of off of yours, Michael. Will we ever see a moment where he will do something that will benefit the United States, but could cost him his job? In other words, will he make, I guess it's the same, but it's, 
I'm flipping it and saying, do you think he would ever surprise us and show us that he has any type of uh, 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 wherewithal at all other than keeping that job? Well, this is this uh, profiles in courage versus yes. profiles in cowardice uh, <laughs> dichotomy. And he's always <laughs> seemed to have fallen on the profiles in cowardice side of the ledger. That's... I don't know what evidence there is to believe that this this dog spots can be changed. <laughs> I guess I'm eternally, I, rather than be a cynic, I'm eternally hopeful. <laughs> that that, that's the role of your grandchild. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. The, the eternally happy one. <laughs> yeah. um, he, can, he can be eternally uh, optimistic as well. You have to be <laughs> way different. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, <laughs> I try to think, what am I hopeful about? Uh, like stuff that we talk about here on the podcast, or or we cover day to day. I man, that's a hard. That's a hard one. What are you, what are you hopeful about? It's tough, isn't it? That's, that's a well, tough I'm always one. hopeful that the hour is coming to an end. You know that's. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> well, and as we discuss that, Michael's on a roll. He's on a roll today. Oh, I'm telling you, a tough room. <laughs> You know, as as we talk about looking ahead to the future, hey, <laughs> Pelosi's going to run again, John. Are you surprised? <clears throat> Somewhat surprised. I have a hunch that uh, Democrats, and boy, nobody had this a couple years ago, think that they can win back the majority in the House. And, you know, we, we heard, um, and, you know, I, I was victim of as well this talk of this red wave in the midterms of 2022 that did not happen uh you know the president biden and and nancy pelosi and others basically declared victory because it's only a five seat uh, house majority it was and you know there were predictions of 25 30 seat right. house majority so democrats beat that back and you know pelosi's coming back um she's been there a long time she can raise money. She she's you know she's going to help Akeem Jeffries in that way in a in a big way. Uh, she's still a big fundraiser. She's still effective. She's still a voice in that conference. I mean, you know, when the the and 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 this will be tested um, again, or, or or we'll see this again when there's um, an actual spending bill that Democrats might have to push across the finish line you know, sit in the House chamber or, or you know, watch C-SPAN and there's Hakeem Jeffries and there's uh, Catherine Clark, the Democratic whip. And and who's in the middle? Who are they talking to? They're looking at the vote board. There's Nancy Pelosi and yeah. Steny Hoyer's not too far away. So, you know, she's speaker and of and I'm talking about age-wise, but yeah. No, no but, but she's still in a, she's she, speaker emeritus, but, you know, she could, easily be you know her title could one of her titles could be a senior advisor to leadership you know she's still helping them with tactics and strategy she has a voice um he's jeffries is something of a protege of pelosi and clark as well so you know she's got a role to play here i just uh, you know a master i guess troll I, I i don't i'm not a fan of that word but she really gets under Republican skin as well. And she can be, she can, she can say things that Jeffries can't because he's, he's leader. Right. Um, she can throw more punches and boy, does she annoy the hell out of Republicans. And 
you know, her statement that she she wrote on Twitter X, whatever we're calling that social media site these days, you know, she mentioned um, she's running again because the country needs, quote, San Francisco values, end quote. There and you know. I, I just had to chuckle on Friday when I read that because she's just she's just messing with him. I mean, turn on Fox News and listen to the things they say about San Francisco values. And I just had to chuckle. It was it was such a Pelosi statement. And, you know, she knows exactly what she's doing. Yeah, and she does. But she, let me interrupt she, you for this. Let me yeah. I, I, let me interrupt you for this. And and Michael, in we're going to talk a little bit about polls. In the, the CBS poll just came out with, in the eyes of Americans, age brings experience and seniority in elected office. But according to this poll, that's outweighed by concerns that elected officials might be, quote, out of touch are unable to do their job past the age of 75. And that includes uh, Nancy Pelosi, even though I love that X and Twitter that, uh, posting that you talked about, John. Michael, you think there's any case to be made for that? I'm I'm approaching that age at some point in time. Let's see, you think that the, that, that, uh, the poll is, is accurate in displaying what Americans think about our elected officials? I expect that if it were put to a vote and... The question was, should there be a, a mandatory retirement age for uh, elected officials? I think it would pass overwhelmingly. I think that the notion that we've got so many people in senior leadership positions throughout all um, stages of our government, all phase three phases of our government, make people you know sort of think that uh, it is a closed, you know, close club and um that's not that's not good you know if um it would also preclude donald trump and uh and uh joe biden from running this uh, in 2024 yeah and i mean in that cbs poll they say um legislators elected officials over the age of 75 80 percent uh say there's a risk of them being out of uh touch and 78 about their ability to continue to do their their job um so people are worried about that look everywhere you go pretty much unless you own your own uh you know shop you work for a company uh and and more or less you have to retire i had to retire from deloitte at 62 um that was mandatory i didn't have any i didn't have any options only the government uh you can stay on you know a year or two past your death and not <laughs> raise any, 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 any red flags. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> In Georgia, which is why we had to have those challenges. Could you uh, just find 11,000? Could you find 11,000 Michaels? Just find them. That's just a I don't care if they're dead. Right. <laughs> it's okay when I do it. Yeah. <laughs> rights only when it matters to me. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Brian, the answer is it, it is a concern. It's always been, you know, from Kennedy, the 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 torch has been passed to a new generation of leadership was was a good thing. And yeah, but they but kept that, the torch. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they grew up and they and and they've they've hidden the torch. You know, yeah, and, remember when we got upset that when Ronald Reagan got elected was the oldest guy to get elected office. He was 69. He the the people that are running in this election, think of the two people that are opposing Biden in the in the Democratic primaries 
Williamson would be 71 or 72 if she were elected, and Robert Kennedy Jr. would be 71 or 70. They'd both be older than Ronald Reagan. <laughs> That's right. That's... What, what's the average age? Do you, either of you guys know what the average age of um, chief executives are in countries in Europe? Do you know, do I have we... no idea. No I mean, idea. I'm wondering whether we're out of, you know, bounds that most of our leaders are way older than their leaders or whether this is a global phenomenon among um, Western democracies. Well, here you go. I just quickly Googled it. European le leaders are younger. Today, the average age of a European head of government is 53. In the 1980s, it was over 65. But today it is just 53. And that's yeah. uh, that's interesting compared to what we've got. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, mean, I, think, I think to answer your question, it is a concern. And yes, you don't want a government made up of um, beginners. It's not a place that you can quickly learn on the job and be effective, in, in, in my view. Um, but you have to find some middle balance. Well, the median age at inauguration of incoming U.S. presidents is also just 55 years of age. That's the median, half above, half below. Yeah, but if you if you do it from uh, 1950 or 1900, oh, yeah. it'll tilt it'll tilt further. I mean, it's just because yeah. the the original members uh, were much younger. Yeah. Well, John, let's uh, we, we talk about that poll from CBS. Uh, but we also know that the latest in the polls show that Donald Trump and and uh, Biden are at a dead heat. Does it matter at this point in time? Or the do we even question the polls anymore? Do we do we look and see how they were conducted, or we're just taking these numbers as if they're gospel? Some folks do that. I don't. You know, I I try to not do that. Um, do they matter? I think they do matter um it's not gospel no 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 uh, <laughs> they're flawed we learned that in 2016 uh, we learned that again in 2022 we should have with the midterms uh, because there was no red wave so, but the polls do give us a snapshot in time they tell us things about the mood of the country um, now, we do know that people aren't truthful with pollsters. We we learned that again, 2016, yeah. 2022. But, you know, things like I try to focus on things like in a poll a month ago, Joe Biden was up, um, you know, four or five points nationally. I know the presidential race is not a national election. Got electoral college. Got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's up four or five points because you'll get those tweets if you don't say it. Um, yeah. X's or whatever they are. Um, anyway, so Trump, you know, Biden's up four, That's five, six okay. points nationally. Um, uh, a month ago, Trump's indicted again, takes his Armada motorcade to the Atlanta jailhouse to be arrested and, and processed. Um, all these motions, you know, Mark Meadows, you know, all this stuff's going on, all these hearings. And, you know, any other candidate would be sunk, would be dead in the water. And a month later, in the same poll, they're tied. Trump closed four or five points. He closed the margin of error on Joe Biden in a month after getting indicted again on 13 more felony charges, trying to steal an now, election, allegedly. Mondale within one point. I didn't so, do that. <laughs> I didn't do that. 
So anyway, I think polls matter like that. But when when we see a big shift like that, despite you know one, the one of the front runners being indicted for a fourth time since March, you know I do think that tells us something. But but to your point, I hear you um, that you know we can't put too much stock because people aren't paying attention like we are, or yeah. li- even listeners to this podcast. Most people are not paying attention yet. And they won't until after the the convention exactly yeah so i i take your point but i do think it's and it is incumbent upon us again to take a breath and and try to look at explain them how they were how they were conducted what it means michael i i i I lean into you for this as well so i've been looking um at polls in previous elections uh in this late august early september period and what you see was in uh, 1983, at this point, Reagan, 44%, Mondale, 43%. Reagan won in a landslide. Um, Clinton, Dole, at this point, 48-48. Clinton won going away. At this point in 2011, Obama, 48, Romney, 48. So, you know, all of these polls say, in some sense, to what you just said, Brian, which is it's September, a year out. And in politics, that's a, a that's a lifetime. And, you know, these polls that say, do you prefer this candidate or that as I have been reading them, which is not that closely because I've got enough legal stuff to, to to do and books to read, but it doesn't say at the bottom line, but will you hold your nose and vote for that person? <laughs> but because uh, I do think there's a big difference be- between preferring a younger Democrat or, or an alternative um, to Trump or, or, or Biden and walking into the... Uh, polling station and um, casting a ballot for or against them. I still think that even if Biden is not the first choice, if he's running against, you know, DeSantis or or Trump in particular, I think uh, the 2020 coalition can be brought back together. For me, the interesting question would be if lightning struck and biden were running against nikki haley how does that how does that uh turn out she you know has some uh, appeal obviously to independent women um but she's a woman of color um and that's not really been the you know prime republican candidate um although they're making strides so you know it'll be that would be an interesting race to, to to see and john bennett i'm sure has opinions uh, <laughs> that are way smarter than mine well I, i'm just going to say that I, I i think that if we look at polls now i i think that we should be explaining to uh the viewers how they were taken what they actually mean what the questions were asked the only use i see for them at this point is donald trump being able to uh, spout out appearance the appearances where the reality is far different from the appearances. I don't think that we have a really good beat on who's going to be 
the and uh, you know me, John. I still think that that uh, Trump ain't going to be on the ballot. But I I I think I I hear what you're saying about uh, the polls. They they are a snapshot reflection. But what are they a reflection of? I don't think that we do a very good job in the media of explaining to people what those polls are a snapshot of. John, I'll give you the last word on it before we go to break. Well, one thing the polls uh, do show, uh, Americans actually agree on something that's not the NFL, and that is that they don't want Donald Trump or Joe Biden on the ballot next November. And, you know, every poll, it's just huge huge numbers. And I didn't know if I was going to do this, but I will because I'm me. This is, you know, this this rematch. Why we love you? <laughs> what? somebody does? Um, you know, <laughs> this is the rematch that nobody wants. This is, and I'm going to do uh, a pro wrestling. I'm going to go to the WWE. This is Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar eight. Nobody wants to see those two big guys go at it again. I don't care how many belts Roman Reigns comes to the ring with. Okay, we've seen it. There's a reason the last couple times the arena full of people at WrestleMania or SummerSlam or whatever ridiculous event um, were chanting, this is awful. Okay, nobody wants to see Donald Trump and Joe Biden go at it again. But that's what we're we're probably going to get um, that. I just think that's interesting. That, and and it doesn't move like it doesn't get any better for either guy. Yeah. Americans are Americans are just you know, for the most part done with these guys. But the thing about the difference here is, is Trump, of course, uh, the polls do show that while Democrats aren't enthused for some reason with Joe Biden, um, they might turn out again to, to vote for Biden. So, you know, and against Trump, they're essentially voting against Trump. And Biden is still the only Democratic national politician who, who could probably beat Trump in a one-on-one general election. And the polls do show us that. That is crystal clear. So nobody wants it, but sorry, folks. That's what we're going to get. <laughs> and on that wonderful upbeat note, we'll take a, that's me. a short break, and we'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with another edition of Just Ask the Press with uh, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. Before we finish up today, a couple of quick announcements for everyone. We'll be, it, it, we're going to reboot and rebrand at the beginning of the year and uh, with a little uh, advertising behind it, and you're going to see us. Uh, for those who listen to the podcast, we're hoping to put together at least two live events that you can join us at as we do... Uh, uh, this weekly roundup of news and maybe even have a guest or two in it that we can berate equally. Uh, and so I, I want to, pr- I appreciate everyone who has uh, uh, subscribed and downloaded. Uh, and on that regard, 
we're going to talk a little bit about these are letters that came in recently and we've, i've got one for each of us and this one is from first for michael from tangled up in boo boo 79 uh as and i i picked these simply because they're basically personal for all of you uh michael what's bob dylan's worst album and worst song yeah, I don't, I don't know that I, <laughs> I feel about, you know, it's, it's, you funny, go. it's a funny thing um, because I, I, I thought at one point that um, the couple of albums um, that um, he had during this, you know, very religious um, phase, um, we had um, slow train coming and, Oh mercy! He's had a whole batch of these things, but when I go back um, and 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 listen to them, I I think that um, there's some really good. I like the song "Slow Train Coming." Um, I like this the the song "Every um, Grain of Sand." So I I, I I I'm really struggling to find um, it, but I think probably. Um, the, the worst studio album for me is um, his Christmas album. Yes. <laughs> Christmas in the Heart, um, uh, where he sings like, here comes Santa Claus and <laughs> yeah. Santa Claus Blues and Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. So I think maybe um, you could pick Here Comes Santa Claus <laughs> off of the Christmas in the Heart album. <laughs> I, I have a hard time disagreeing with you there. <laughs> Hanging up in Santa Claus. Ooh, that's, that's all right. We'll move on. This one you're going to love, John. This one's for you. <laughs> and I got it this morning. It's from, you're going to, you're going to know what it's, what it's from just by who sent it. Jay Staple 76 lover. <laughs> Here's the question. Is oh. UNC that bad or is App State that bad? Wow, what a question. Um, both defenses are pretty bad. I think we learned that yesterday. Uh, you know, UNC had over 500 total yards offense. Ab State wasn't wasn't that far behind. Um, you know, Carolina's defense struggled mightily last year, and and Ab State's defense absolutely collapsed at the end of the season. Um, we're not in Boone and and wherever we have gone since then used to six and six seasons. That's what we got last year. Uh, we'll see if this defense can can get it together because they certainly didn't uh, yesterday. Um, I'm I will be haunted for a while. Drake May, the Tar Heel quarterback in in double overtime, just walking into the end zone on an end around. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't touched and. So, you know, we've got to well, refresh everybody's uh, uh, knowledge of what happened yesterday. <laughs> this was the third game of a three game contract. And Mac Brown, the Tar Heel coach, says uh, he, they will not schedule App State again. And for good reason. In 2019, App State went to Chapel Hill and pulled the upset. A wild game in Boone last year. Um, App State somehow scored 40 points in the fourth quarter and found a way to lose. Both teams were scored in the 60s. Just a wild game. And um, Saturday evening, uh, App State, the rubber match back in Chapel Hill, lost in double overtime to the Tar Heels, 40-34. to 34, And it was just another offensive game. Uh, both teams, you know, 
ran the ball extraordinarily well. And, you know, Carolina can score. And, you know, that would be an interesting matchup, I think, uh, UNC versus Florida State in the ACC championship game. Because they can score, they could stay in the game with just about anybody. So that's one thing about, about Carolina having a weak defense. They can go up and down the field. They can run the ball. Drake May is probably going to be the first quarterback off the board in the NFL draft. So they're built to to play with just about anybody. They're not going to stop anybody. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter if, if App State scores 34 and you can score 40 or if Florida State scores 41 and you can score 42. And that's what Mac has built down in Chapel Hill. And begrudgingly, I have to say, um, a lot of respect uh, for both teams, even the Tar Heels, I have to say, uh, those kids played. So who's their... the worst? <laughs> App State or well, we're the worst. We lost the game. There you go. All right. And the final but, question. But very proud, very proud of, of App State and, and how they did play very hard. They played extremely hard. Both teams did. A lot of respect for those kids. So, okay. And so I'm going to move on to the last question. This one's to me. I uh, This is from Carolyn Roberts. We actually got a name from a, a, a viewer. Um <clears throat> What Beatles song title is the best description of today's media? And I guess I'm going to have to say, why don't we do it in the road? <laughs> I just can't think of anything else that describes the media as much as, as that. So, Better than Obladi Oblada? Yeah, let's... <laughs> or, it certainly ain't revolution, one or nine. <laughs> well, some, some days it does feel like we're all in a yellow submarine. Yes. <laughs> straight to the bottom. Yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah, the submersible that blew up near the <laughs> Titanic. That's yeah, that feels the same. But I'm gonna say, why don't we do it in the road? That's my standard answer to all those questions. So with that, we want to thank you for uh, joining us. Hey, wait, wait, uh, wait. We just gotta say congratulations to Coco Groff for winning the U.S. Open uh, yesterday, age 19, U.S. Open champion. Great story. That is a great story. Michael, where can we catch your great stories? We'll let you plug away, baby. The podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin. I do my first taping of this season on Tuesday. We'll probably release it at the end of the week. And that's with Heather Cox Richardson, um, the great historian from Boston College, who wrote a book called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Cool. Uh, Tune in. She's great. And John? Uh, Rollcall.com, a weekly column every Friday morning. Uh, and uh, Monday morning, uh, legislative preview. If you want to find out all the stuff that Congress is not going to do for the rest of the year, check that out. And CQ Afternoon Briefing, uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, CQ.com. I just like the way you said that. Everything they're not going to do. <laughs> so <laughs> that covers a lot of ground there, brother. Let's, so, And this is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. This is our weekly roundup called Just Ask the Press, where we go over the weekly uh, news and unpack it for you. And you can catch anything you want here. Also, you can catch me at uh, on, uh, oh, yeah, where am, where am I? Uh, Salon.com every Thursday with a column. And uh, at Brian Caramore, and the name of the book is uh, Free the Press. So thanks for joining us. Once again, we'll catch you next time.